for most of human history, cooking with fire was the one and only way to cook a meal. This episode of Untold is with Western Australian affable chef, Dave Pint. Chef Pint has one of the longest resumes of culinary accomplishments in the restaurant business today. Over the course of an hour, he talks us through staging, London pop-ups, building his own barbecues, formative experiences, as well as taking us through his approach to life, business, and how he runs his exceptional kitchens and restaurants. Chef Pimp talks about some of his experiences in St. John, Noma, Tutsuya, as well as Achibere, the latter really allowing him to revisit how he thought about barbecue. A genuine realization that dishes created through cooking by fire could still be delicious, high-end, and were not solely the reserve for large gatherings of family and friends. Chef Pint remains humble and as likable as they come. Burnt Ends has since its opening become a Singapore institution, winning a Michelin star when the guide came to the Little Red Dot, and in the latest awards, Burnt Ends was named the 34th best restaurant in the world by San Pellegrino. Despite the continued plaudits and kudos from industry bastions, at home in Perth with his family, Chef Pint's father runs the barbecue and has no intention of passing over the baton anytime soon. Long may this continue. Enjoy Untold with Chef Dave Pint. advisory. This episode includes some colourful language from the start. Please heed this if you usually listen with small children. Thank you and enjoy. Untold. Chef Pitt, yeah. thanks, thanks ever so much for, for joining Untold. In the early years and, and growing mm. up in Western Australia and Perth, I know Australia clearly has a barbecue culture. I'm not so sure about the differences that, that uh, WA may have for the rest of the country, but did it play an integral part of family life? And was there a certain age where you were allowed to take over and actually um, had pride of place cooking at the barbecue? Yeah, look, I, I think um, just quickly, I've never been allowed to take over the cooking of the barbecue to date. It's still my dad's domain. So we're, if we're at his house, it's it's his gig and I try not to interfere uh but I might give a few pointers here and there but it's it's his baby to to sort of build and to manage um but but then going back to grow, growing up with barbecues I mean with, with your mates you have them pretty regularly either down at the beach or around at people's houses or so it's a big part of what we do um but grow, I think probably the the most memorable part of growing up in terms of barbecues is that uh, every house we ever moved into, my dad would rip out the gas barbecue and put in a wood-fired barbecue. And so it was really an important thing for him to be 
going through the process and having the smells, the sounds, and the time with a wood-fired uh, barbecue, which is a very different process to a, a gas barbecue. That's tremendous. So that that that's a endorsement deal with any gas barbecues not going to come because of the power of wood and and the the great love of wood that you have. It, yeah, unfortunately, not. It's not like I don't really enjoy cooking on gas barbecues and I find it easy enough to cook on wood that I don't need to resort to cooking on something that's not as good. You studied at West Coast Institute. Exactly. Are you able to, to share some of the favorite times that you had as, as a student and, um, and if you had a professional teacher or a topic that, that you found most inspiring during your time there? Yeah, look, I mean, the TAFE was pro like, I think we had to attend. So I was there when I needed to be. I don't know how much attention I ever paid to the classes, but the, the, the group, of, group of kids as we were that went through, went through class with each other was a big, big part of what we loved about the industry. And it was... You know, we'd, we'd all get together on the day, then we'd all go out for drinks afterwards or go and cook afterwards. And so I think it's that camaraderie that you that you start building at TAFE, which was very influential in sort of what we did going forward. But I think my, my memories of my memories of TAFE was that, you know, a lot of it, the teachers don't really want to be there, number one. The students don't want to be there. And what you're learning has very little relevance to what's going on in the in the real kitchens of the time. So probably fair to say a lot a lot less influential or, or formative than than the times you've spent in the kitchen subsequently. Yeah, hundred percent. And you you know now uh, in Singapore we actually do a lot with uh, the CIA. And I think what I've what I've sort of noticed that they do particularly well is they've forged very strong bonds and relationships with top restaurants across the world, which will help them stay relevant. So, you know, if you want to go to CIA in Singapore, they might send their students to say Burn Ends and I, I assume various other restaurants around Singapore. And be like, if you can last six months at Burn Ends or one of these other top restaurants, you can come to CIA. If you don't, then this course is not for you. And so I think that's like the building blocks of, you know, our, our industry and having that relevance to what's going on in the real world is super important to, to how you're going to find the, the education. Australia before you went overseas is, is it possible to talk through some of your early kitchen roles in, in some of Perth's great restaurants and also in Sydney and then some of the early good habits that you picked up and then lastly just how you'd sum up kitchen atmospheres in Australia compared to other places in the world where you've worked yep yeah, so I mean, I started watching dishes at high school when I was 16 years old on weekends, and then uh, at just at a local uh, Italian restaurant, 
And then we got to the end of uh, high school and I didn't want to go to university. So I picked up a few more shifts and then one thing led to another and they offered an apprenticeship uh, for me. So I started my apprenticeship at a place called Mambo Italiano in City Beach. Uh, from there, I think I stayed about another year and then I went to a place called Balthazar in, in Perth in the CBD, which was sort of like, probably one of the better better restaurants in Perth at the time had a great uh, CBD location which resulted in you know the the big work lunches big work dinners a lot of wine going out and I, I completed my apprenticeship there um, before heading overseas or interstate to to work at Tetsuya's um, got to Tetsuya's spent about uh, just under two years over there before heading back to Perth um, to work at Restaurant and Musée for a year, um, which was, uh, I think they won the award for the best restaurant in Perth while, while I was with them. Uh, not because of me being with them, but because they're really fucking good. Um, and then I decided to piss off overseas. Um, so I guess, I guess a couple of things, like I had a big wake up call at, uh, Balthazar and the the head chef at the time basically pulled me out of the back because I was a little shit and uh, said mate if you don't start investing in yourself and reading books and going to eat out you're wasting your fucking time um, and that was a, like the way he presented that to me was a big wake up call and it was kind of like you know stop waiting for other people to feed you everything and fucking go and get it yourself and sort of that 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 turned around a lot of things and really set in my mind that it's, you know, if you wait for everything to be handed to you, you'll get nothing. And so I ended up going over to Tetsuya's, which, you know, you work really hard. You're in this culture where you're surrounded by these absolutely, like the, the best of the best chefs. And I'm not just talking like at the top level where you've got guys like Martin, Ben and Darren Robertson who are leading the kitchen, but even down to the juniors where you've got guys like, uh, Dan Puskas, Phil Wood, uh, Dan Hong, uh, Jow at you, who are all like, you, you know, those those young guns that are just like top of their game in terms of being those young chefs that you know are going to do something good. Um, and then I think that the, the culture, the, one of the big things I really picked up uh, from Australia was that you get fuck, paid fuck all so it's up to you whether you're going to make something of it at the end of it. And if you work your ass off and you accept the money that you get, you've got the potential to learn a shitload and then you're going to become valuable to someone else. And sort of, we, I, I took that sort of overseas when I went staging, you know, I'm not there to earn the money. I'm there to learn a shitload so I can become valuable. Yeah, and onto staging, it it's something which obviously exists in um, the restaurant industry and is tremendously important. And and you managed to uh, spend time at, at some of the world's most fantastic and famous restaurants, including Noma, Saint John, and Asador Echebarri. Sorry, I don't know if I, it, you all know how to pronounce it correctly. Yeah. Etcherberry. It, is it possible it. how to um, 
talk about how these these part-time or limited time exposure to other kitchens how how they actually come about and the the mechanics of how you can go and spend time because whenever you see uh, whether it's chef's table or you you talk to chefs that have got to the top level like your good self the 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 time they've spent in other kitchens have been tremendously important in their development so if you can just talk to stadging that that would really be great yeah look i, I think there's a couple of things with staging no, number one when i was doing it was probably one of the last times it was actually really easy to do and it's now become a lot more regulated um for both insurance purposes and uh uh workplace fairness or something uh reasons but when when i did it it was very much you know you, you emailed and you said hey i want to come and work for you and i don't care if i'm not going to be paid basically and then if if you get accepted and it's not always that you get accepted on the first time i re remember i applied to uh echibari after when i was at noma and they're like nah sorry we're full we're busy we, we don't have any space and then two weeks later they messaged back and they're like can you come out next week and i'm like uh yep and at that stage i didn't know a lick of spanish and so I'm like downloading, downloading like learn Spanish apps so that I, on the on the plane over there I can like at least speak some some form of Spanish and maybe perhaps understand what the hell's going on. But I think the the, the big benefit of staging is that you get exposed to these really intense uh, training periods where you'll learn you've got the ability to pick up and learn so much information in a very short period of time and I, I think globally what what the governments don't realize is that the sharing and the freedom of knowledge and the sharing of skills is worth a whole lot more than worrying about the three jobs that it doesn't provide locals in a number of interviews at Echeberry, you, you, you've talked about it being almost an epiphany that you saw that great quality restaurants can can be created and dishes can be created by fire. What what were some of the insights or what really, you know, went off inside your brain doing that stage that that was so inspirational and allowed you to um, to leave with that impression? Well, well, I think firstly, you know, growing up with my dad's barbecue, he wasn't the best cook. Um, and so it's kind of like, you know, it, it was passable at best. And so when I went over, uh, when I was at Noma figuring out where's, where's next, a few guys were like, oh, you know, barbecue this, barbecue that. And I was like, you know what, got nothing better to do. Let's go see what this barbecue guy's all about, right? So very... I, I was intrigued, but I didn't hold any huge hopes for for what I'd go and see there. And so when I arrived there, I was literally blown away because their the setup that they had to cook on was just like, holy shit. This is not only is it technical, but it's extremely well thought out. 
And the way he operated was that kind of like my dad, he was the master. He he's the one cooking. He's the one doing everything. And it's, and it's with that touch that over the, the, the years and decades that he's been cooking, he's able to been, been able to constantly refine not only the produce that they, that they source, but also the techniques and the flavors they produce out of that kitchen. And, and, I, and I think just going there, it's just watching how perfectly he was able to cook over wood and the produce that he was able to source and how just fucking delicious the food was, was that culmination of, you know, oh, this, this is, these are the ingredients of making an amazing restaurant. And he's just put this over fire. The last question that I've got really about uh, some of your staging um, roles, and I'll phrase it in a bit of a strange way, but it, you're obviously aware of the hotel brand Waldorf Astoria from the partnership you've got in the Maldives. Now, the, the fact that yep. it, the fact that the Waldorf Astoria is a luxury brand to me, when I went to the, the Waldorf in Shanghai, they had three variety of shoe trees. So if you've got black work shoes, brown shoes, and then some casual ones, they had separate shoe trees that, that go into each of them. So when somebody asked me what a luxury hotel is by definition, that was just one of the nuggets or clues that, that say, oh, you know, this, this is a great example of why it's a, why it's a luxury property because, you know, there, there's no cost that has been cut or spared there. Uh, and it's been typically well thought out because people would stay three days and they got three varieties of shoes. But in terms of Noma and St. John and, and some of the other restaurants, were there any small little examples that, that really were, you, were takeaways, but, but exam were metaphors or examples of the whole experience? Yeah, look, I, I, I think I'll, I'll start with Tetsuya's in Sydney. And I think what really and still stands out for me is that super premium that's paid to skill level like cutting things perfectly cooking things perfectly serving them perfectly and working as a team perfectly and i think that's that sort of like that perfection and that idea of perfection was really instilled uh by by tetsuya and the team there to being able to be part of what gets you to that top level um and then heading heading to noma it was just like this huge amount of energy he had like a philosophy of what they were doing why they were doing it and he believed in it and the energy that he was able to throw behind it was unlike any other restaurant in the world and because he had that very clear idea of what they were doing and why they were doing it, everyone was able to get on board and drive it forward. And I think that's, that's really like getting that energy to drive things forward is really what you want to sort of take out of things and having that focus, which can be extremely hard, like Scandinavia, no olive oil, no citrus at the time. And so, working with products where 
and, and ingredients that limit you can actually bring out the best in you if you're curious and hardworking and have a lot of energy. Um, and then that takes me to, uh, we've, we've, we've spoken about Echibari uh, briefly before. So that, that'll take me to St. John. And I think the thing about St. John is everyone talks about them being nose to tail, but my time there and working with a team and, and speaking with Fergus, it's, it's not necessarily about nose to tail. It's just about making fucking delicious food. And that's what he does best. And because he loves eating, he, he's found a way to make delicious food out of all parts of the animal. And that's where his sort of cleverness really comes through and shines with his ability to be just make tasty food. That's that's the criteria of a good restaurant, right? Tasty fucking food. Because there's no there's no artwork, there's no music, the tables are bare, the restaurant's bare, everything's plain. So how do you make it that good? With just really fucking tasty food. So so the nose to tail obviously is the big, big press and everyone writes about it, but it, it's actually not not what the core DNA is. So so that's that's interesting. Chef Fergus seems to have a very well-developed sense of humor. Is that fair? Yeah. Yes. He's got a very he's got a very well well-developed sense of humor. He's a very, very funny guy, and he, and the way he thinks about it is amazing. So it's like how he's able to translate and talk about it. It's very clever and very funny, and it and it makes you it just puts you in this good mood when you're dealing dealing with uh, his food and cooking. And clearly, clearly meat is an important part of it. What, how did your approach to meat post-career change having spent time in St. John? Were there parts of the animal that you wouldn't have considered utilizing before that, that you, you did think of including as an ingredient? Yeah, look, I, I think the big thing that you realize from St. John is that everything can be tasty you just got to think about it and work at it and you you know stuff like did i think we'd be able to put livers do like right now we're using um we've, we've got codsperm back in back on the menu we've got monkfish liver back on the menu we're using duck hearts and it's just did i think previously that you could use these ingre ingredients and essentially charge a premium for them because they at the essence of them they're delicious and your time in london then it it, it really seems to have coincided with with things that were really getting started which which would include pop-ups and and then supper clubs um are you able to share some of the stories of, of your time where you were putting on or attending and cooking at some of the London's supper clubs and then essentially just just a brief description as to what the what the scene was like back then in London because I, I guess it was around 2010 2011 when that would really be when they were pretty new yeah yeah I think I I think I got there in 2011 and left at the end of 2012 um but when I got there like London was sort of really 
transforming at that stage and it was super exciting you had these super talented uh young chefs that were keen to sort of explore and do pop-ups and show what they've got while without taking that huge risk of either partnering with someone or or opening a restaurant and so i went i went over and worked at st john bread and wine and james Lowe was the head chef and i think he lasted about a month before he sort of finished after five years and he he had been doing uh pop-ups uh with the young turks so I, isaac McHale and uh ben greeno and so because of the connection with St. John and the, the nature of pop-ups, they're like, oh, we need chefs. And it's like, okay, yeah, I can help. You know, I want to see what's going on. I want to learn from these young guys. I want to, like, I'm here to get involved, right? And so I got the opportunity to cook with, uh, cook for the Young Turks. Essentially, I was just a little bitch. Um, and then the Young Turks turned into the Clove Club and then I ended up working for Nuno Mendes uh, at the Loft Project, which was hosting sous chefs from top restaurants around the world and would put on three days worth of worth of dinners um, for guests. Uh, and I ended up getting put onto the barbecue station uh, for the pop-ups because of obviously where I'd just come from in Asadoy Chibari. Um, and then we ended up doing uh, a project called the Dalston Night Markets with Nuno Mendez in the, at the back of East London. I think it was the first uh, food night market in London. And we had about 21 stalls and it was, I think it was December 2011 or end of November, start of December. So it was getting really fucking cold. <laughs> and everyone was like, oh, you're going to do like 200 people and da 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 da. And we, we had an amazing lineup of, of, of stalls and chefs and, and bars and, and, and everything going on. And we ended up having, it was, I think it was snowing on the first day. And we had a queue round the block, which was to be, to be involved in a project like that was pretty fucking incredible and then coming off the back of that uh going into the burn end pop-up i after seeing everything that the the other young guys had been able to sort of achieve i was i was getting a bit itchy and so had been sort of trying to investigate what what opportunities there might be and then nuno mendez put me in touch with uh with a guy called ian who owns clinton and sons roastery and he basically wanted to do a uh, a barbecue in his railway arch where he has the roastery. And I was like, yeah, fuck it, why not? And so he was like, oh, you know, we'll put, a, put the barbecues here and we'll do this and we'll do that and we'll be partners and it'll be great. And so I ended up building the first of our four-ton ovens and, and elevation grills. And I think when he saw them, he was like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> And I was like, yeah, yeah, we we were having a barbecue, right? And he's like, yeah, but I was just imagining a couple of like gas barbecues and trestle tables and away we go. I'm like, yeah, 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 but this will be better. (laughs) And and clearly the courtyard had the space for that because they're not small ovens. 
no, it had a huge. It, I mean, it was a it was an amazing space just at the back of London Fields. Had this amazingly huge courtyard where it really fitted in really really nicely. And so away we away we went for for the summer of 2012. Which, which was the Olympics. So London was obviously the place to be anywhere in the globe in 2012. Yeah, yeah. It was like, it was, London was happening. London, London was pumping, pumping. A lot of the young guys doing pop-ups. There was huge amounts of creativity, lots going on, lots of energy in the industry. So it was, it was really a great time to be there. And Chef Pin, L- London Fields is, is near to Hackney. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it, it's the place where all the football pitches. Uh, no football, no, that's no Hackney football Marshes. Pitches. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's Hackney Marshes. London Field's got the uh, Lido. Okay. Yeah. And and, and, a, and, and just, an area that was completely transformed. So it now it, it tremendously uh, trendy and 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 lots of bars and restaurants, which. I guess prior to 2012 and these pop-ups, they wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't have been somewhere where a foodie or a gastronomy person would go. No, definitely not. Definitely not. I think even when I was there, it it was in the process of transforming, but still considered a little bit rough. Yeah. Then your time in, um, in, putting on burnt ends, which ENZ at, at Clemson and Sons, it clearly was a huge hit with, with over 350 guests a day. What was, what was the event that you did with Raymond Blanc? So I think about halfway through the pop-up, there was these film producers that had been coming to the art, archway uh, for a while. And we're like, hey, we're filming this series with Raymond Blanc. And, you know, we were wondering if he could come down and we could film part of the, the barbecue uh, episode here. And I, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, fuck, to have a guy like Raymond Blanc come down, that would be absolutely incredible. And I was like, what, is, what does he want to cook? And they turned, turned to me and go, no, 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 you have to cook for him. And I just, like, I literally shut myself. I'm like, huh? <laughs> I'm like, I can't cook for fucking Raymond Blanc. This guy's like a living legend. And uh, so anyway, I, I ended up having to cook for him, um, which which was pretty amazing. Um, amazing experience because I was dead nervous, dead nervous about cooking for him. And then how did, how did you get to meet um, Chef Andre and, and Cop from the Unlisted Collection and, and then move... What, what was a pop-up in, in East London during the Olympics to obviously 13 and a half hour flight and to really reinvent a, a part of Singapore, which, which is really now the place to go when, when you'd open burnt ends? So the way it sort of happened is uh, at the end of 2012, it was coming into winter. So we were like, oh, it's too cold to cook outdoors. So let's close down and we'll go traveling for six months and then we'll come back and reopen. And so me and my now wife uh, pissed off to South America and were traveling around South America. While we're in South America, Nuno Mendes, who I'd done the love project for and Dolphin Night Markets uh, for, um, was in Singapore. And they were like, 
uh, Peng and Peng and Andre were like, oh, we're going to open a barbecue restaurant just over, just over the road. And Nuno was like, oh, if you're opening a barbecue restaurant, you need to speak to this guy. And so they called me up and we, we were in Peru at the time. And uh, and we're just like, oh, we, we're opening a barbecue restaurant. Are you? Would you be interested in coming to Singapore? And so I was with the missus and I was like, oh, I mean, we may as well have a look at it. And so they flew us out here, uh, had a look at the space, had a look at Singapore. And obviously there's, at the time there was, and still is some incredible chefs in, in, in the city. And so I was kind of like, look, if we can take what we were doing outdoors into a permanent venue, that would be pretty cool. And we know the partners, like, I, I saw the way Peng uh, had partnered with Nuno Mendes at Town Hall. And I was like, his management style is very hands-off, but he gives you the room to, to grow and develop. And even if you don't hit it off from day one, he'll give you the support to sort of keep pushing and keep growing, which I thought was pretty incredible. So we ended up going, fuck it, let's move to Singapore and see what happens. And then the next part was obviously the oven. So when you build these, these industrial-sized ovens that, that give you the functionality that you need to create your incredible dishes, how does that process work and, and how do you start from scratch? So, I mean, we're coming up onto our one, two, three, our fourth, we're building our fourth uh, burn ends oven uh, probably starting tomorrow. Um, but the first one was like, I imagined what the Echibari ovens were like. I, I, I researched like shit what, how pizza ovens work. And then I, I researched the materials that you needed. And then we spoke to you know, some, some builders and oven builders that happened to be in, in Singapore, in London at the time. Um, and basically we put together, like put together how, how we were going to get this all done. And then we just went for it. And so that was, that was the first set of ovens. That was just like, you know, if it didn't work, you know, I look like a massive idiot, but that's the worst of it. It wasn't, it wasn't huge end game. So I was like, fuck it, let's do it. And then moving to Singapore, we, we knew what worked, what didn't work. We knew how to build, well, I knew how to build it. And so we designed it again. And then I, I was here for every day of the build. And yeah, now oven number four, it's, you know, there's a few more changes and a few, few more improvements, hopefully. And we're just constantly learning and improving with them. Fantastic. Burnt Ends need, needs very little introduction. You've won, obviously, multiple awards, stars, plaudits, and um, the Google searches for Burnt Ends some months are, are more than Raffles Singapore. So it's, it's a bona fide Singapore institution. But restaurants, clearly, there, there tends to be a milestone or an early win to get under the belt? Yeah, look, I, I think the one that I'll, I'll, I'll always sort of come back to was uh, 
that we got a write-up in the New York Times about burn ends. And I just remember thinking, fuck, we're a shitty little barbecue restaurant in Chinatown, Singapore, and we got a write-up in one of the most prestigious papers in the world. And I just, yeah, I'll always remember that. That was very, for me, that was kind of like, we're doing something right. We're doing something right. And uh, now with, with Netflix documentaries and everything else, has there been a, because you're a relatively small number of covers and, and you were, even before the awards and stars, you, you constantly were fully booked, waitlist, and obviously much in demand. Were, were there any recent events that, that really drove demand to, to a, a, an even higher level? Like, for example, the, the Netflix documentary uh, or, or any of the award wins that, that had such a cat catalyst type of effect? Yeah, look, I, I don't think anything sort of really sort of, I, th I think it's been a steady build, like from like the constant sort of uh, growing list of things that we, we're doing. Um, but a lot of it, because of the nature of Singapore being a city that like meant to be a travel hub for the last 18 months of no travel, all most of these awards don't mean shit. Yeah. They don't bring in any any extra business. It's a very trap market. And because we've been here for almost nine years now, we're, we're a relatively well-known name. But I guess, I guess the biggest thing that's driven demand is throughout this COVID period, we've gone from 55 seats down to 14 seats. And now we can only uh, do two sittings a night instead of three or four that we used to do. Yeah, which, which is tremendously tough from a, a financial perspective. Um, and I guess it's, it's not nice to, to be able to not, not meet a lot of the demand also, because obviously uh, you'd, you'd want to accommodate as many people as is possible. How long after Burnley yeah. did, did Meetsmith open? And, and are you able to, for a non-Singapore resident or someone that hasn't had the pleasure of enjoying the two, are you able to describe some of the similarities and obviously the clear differences between an experience at dining at Burnt Ends and then the smokehouse concept that you have at Meatsmith. Yeah, look, I think I think Burn Ends is Burn Ends is really sort of an extension of what me and the team want to cook, the environment that we want to create and the service style that we want to give and so you get this you end up with this very personalized and distinct restaurant experience at burn ends um and then when you go to meat smith meat smith is sort of your american barbecue idea which is based on technique and so it, it's a little bit more high volume a little bit more accessible but still very very fun and wood fire focused and you know over the years we've gone from like a plancher to an elevation grill where we cook on wood and we've implemented like a variety of steaks as well as all the smoked meats that we we offer 
uh, from the smokers. And so I, I think it's sort of like you've got that very niche experience in burn end and then you've got this more accessible experience in meatsmith um meatsmith's got a tremendous burger uh, can, can you talk through yeah. how, how you how you develop such a great great product and burger and and, and then why it why it continues to play an important part in in the culinary landscape from such a broad range of price points and sizes and meats etc yeah, look, I, I think it, it was one of those things where I never thought I'd go. I've always typically avoided the burger space, which is why we call our pulled pork Sanger a Sanger instead of a burger, because we don't want to get pulled into that, that competitive sort of landscape. And we don't really have an interest in being competitive with the other people. We, we, we have a, a Sanger and we, that's what you get and we hope you enjoy it. So having the opportunity with with a with a smokehouse, you obviously get a lot of trim uh, and a lot of wastage. And so I was like, look, we we need that for for an American smokehouse. You, you really need that that burger to underpin it. And I think we it's just o over a lot of conversations that you start really thinking about what you enjoy in a burger. And if you do a little bit of research, I think the most famous burger or the most commonly the most commonly sold burger is a is literally just a cheeseburger and you ask you ask a lot of people what they really enjoy and what they go back to time and time again and it's like bun sauce patty cheese and pickles that's it they don't want a, a lot of people don't want the tomato they don't want the lettuce they don't want the the onions, they don't want this, they don't want that. And so we just sort of went, well, what is it that that we actually really enjoy? And what don't we like about what you can get on the market? And in Singapore, obviously, we've been baking our own breads at Burn Ends for a long time. And so we were like, okay, it's got to be a potato bun. But why does it need to be a potato bun? It needs to be a potato bun because meat and potatoes are the best friends ever. And so having the potato bun made sense. And so we got to work making a potato bun. And then it's like, what sauces do you like? It's like ketchup, barbecue, mustard, essentially. So we made a sauce based on those three components. Pickles is, is a must because, I don't know, we all, you need something a little bit rich a uh, little bit acidic to cut through the richness. And then it was like, okay, what, in a patty, what do you look for, right? And if you go to a lot of the, the, the top burger places in around the world, they'll talk about the composition of the grind. And all the time, it's going to be secondary, secondary cuts that they put through it. So it might be chuck, brisket, rump. And so we worked on what that grind was. And then even when we ate it, we were just like, fuck, it's missing something still. And then it's like, how are we going to enhance this flavor, right? And then we're like, oh, we're a smokehouse. We have all this amazing smoked brisket trim. So we're like, what would happen if we ground some of the smoked brisket trim 
through our burger patty. And we did that and it just tasted fucking delicious. So that was, that sort of gave us the crust. And then I always remember, I love, I love the texture of biting through two thinnish patties. And I don't know why two makes a difference, but it does. And it's a textural thing and it's, it's, it affects the way it feels when you eat it. And it also affects the, the crust to meat ratio in the actual patty, which is what we like. And so that sort of settled us on, you know, do we have two or one? Kids can always have one, but we offer it as a double patty because of the texture and, and the extra malleard effect that you get on a double patty for the meat size. That's essentially our burger. Obviously we've, we've got shitty American cheese because <laughs> it works, it works perfectly with every single burger. Oh, well, that, that, thank you for talking through the process. That's uh, yeah, it, it, it's great to hear. And um, whilst the, the burgers obviously not, not the most sophisticated, it's still, I guess with any dish, if you've got the passion, the precision and you approach it with, the, the approach you've just described there, you're going to end up with, with the best in class, whatever the actual item is. Yeah. I mean, you, you hope to be up there with some of the best, but obviously, you know, over the years you keep refining it, hopefully, and keep improving. And in terms of the, the many awards that you've won, unfortunately, you've, you've talked about the lockdown. So commercially, the, the success has not, been allowed for extra extra diners or volume or anything else necessarily but but surely long term they, they're going to be beneficial but is there any hierarchy or do, do any of the awards that you've won mean any more than the others and, and then how do you and the brigade typically go out and and celebrate because these are life-changing events yeah look i i, I think um you know all the awards offer different things and have different perspectives and different things that they value right and so i think i think there were, i think i can't remember whether it was elaine de that said it but it's like if these if these awards support our industry it's important for us to be a part of them and it's an honor for us to be a part of them. And I think that's that's the way I look at it because they do, they all cop a lot of criticism, but at the end of the day, they're doing amazing things about raising awareness, improving standards, and actually just helping businesses succeed in our industry. And I think if you hate on a group that does those things, regardless of whether they make money off it or not, then you're sort of going against, you're, you're sort of shooting yourself in the foot for no reason. So we, we always think it's a very good, it, it, it's, a, it's an amazing achievement to be a part of any award that we're, we're able to sort of be a part of. Um, and then typically the way we celebrate is we'll, just crack open a couple of bottles 
of champagne to have a, have a cheers with with us and the guests that are in house at the moment, and then we just fucking get on with it. <laughs> Very good, and and you've you've already talked over the the um, well over the over the course of the pods that you've named some incredible chefs. Were, were there any chefs that have come to Singapore and and given you great feedback on burnt ends that? That really have given you as much pride as an award win might be because of the esteem you hold them in. To to be honest, I think their presence in the restaurant is is good enough, and I think, you know, I think having Victor uh, come into the restaurant and eat over the fifty best when it was held in Singapore was really something that, you know, I, I I'm very he. From what I understand, he liked it, and that made me that that was probably made me really really happy. But I think the most important people that come and enjoy it is is family. And as long as my family love coming in and love enjoying it, then it makes coming to work every day easy. Absolutely, and on onto the the idyllic Maldives. You you've opened up. <laughs> You've opened up the ledge there, and, and and I know that you haven't been able to travel as much as, as as you'd like, but you have managed to get over to the Maldives at least a couple of times. So probably not not too many listeners are so sympathetic to you currently, but not many chefs get to have a restaurant in, in the Maldives. You're able to just talk through how you came up with the, the concept and then how how often you managed to get on site and then what people would, would experience in the Maldives compared to a Burnt hands, meat smith, and, and so on. Yeah, so I, I mean, whenever if being in Southeast Asia, you sort of if you if you've ever travelled around uh, to anywhere else, whether it's Vietnam, Philippines, or or Indonesia, uh, or even Thailand, and you go to one of these beachside resorts, the always one of the ex- dining experiences that you look for is the beach barbecue and just sitting on the beach with freshly caught barbecued seafood. It's just one of those combinations that really work. And so for the, for the ledge uh, at Waldorf Astoria, it's just, we, we think we're all right at cooking barbecue. And so taking what we do, the techniques, our attitude towards service, and and the style that we have we we it, it kind of feels like it makes a lot of sense it it does it's not too hard to understand that we could possibly do a pretty good beach barbecue and so bringing burn ends to the beach for me was always something that I'd love to be a part of and so we got that opportunity with with Waldorf Astoria um and I guess the, the big difference differences are in in the Maldives, what we've created is more of a like burn ends in, in Singapore is very like eat, whether it's from London or even Singapore, it's very grungy, very earthy, very like, you know, uh, inner city kind of big city feeling. When you go to the beach, you don't want that. So we we sort of went for that sort of Californian beach shack sheet vibe where it's very light, a lot of light timbers, open, bright, airy, chilled out, 
little bit more casual music, still a really good sound system, but casual music, a lot lighter, not a lot lighter, but, you know, where we introduce dishes, we're introducing uh, more local seafood and slightly lighter dishes that, that sort of, that, that people kind of want to experience when they're having a beach barbecue. Tremendous. And there are obviously so many um, upscale resorts in Maldives. It, it was a, a genius move to bring you on board because um, I'm sure at one point in my life, I'll get to, to visit the Maldives. I haven't as yet, but it certainly you're, you're having a restaurant there would be a major pull and a major reason to visit the resort. Yeah, look, we just had a couple of guests that had, um, have been out uh, to the Waldorf Astoria but had spent a bit of time with us, like dining with us in, in Singapore. And the reason they went is because uh, we, we had a restaurant out there, which, you know, not to take away anything from the hotel because the, the hotel's absolutely incredible, but to, to be able to add a little bit of value to, to something so amazing is, is, is a really nice feeling. Excellent. And in terms of, I've read, but I'm, I don't know a tremendous amount. If, is there anything in the public domain you're allowed to say about the new Burnt Ends location and, and when you might be opening and, and where in Singapore? Yeah, look, we, we're, getting, we're getting pretty close to, to opening up and it's up in Dempsey Hill uh, in Singapore, obviously, uh, Block 7. Uh, we're going to be opening the bakery hopefully end of October, early November, and then the restaurant. If all things go equally, uh, we should open the restaurant early December. But Dempsey is a fantastic location to be, and uh, and and as, as again had a great great last five years in terms of some of the developments that they've added up there. Yeah. No, look, I mean, Dempsey is super exciting uh, with what they're doing and how they're, how they're going. So to be able to get up there, I think it's, it's going to be a good move. And what we've noticed over this, this last little bit is that everyone books their restaurants now. There's not so much, oh, let's just pop out for dinner. It's we're going to make an effort to go to this place. And if we don't get this place, we're not going to go out. Yeah. So to have a little little bit more space and being somewhere that may not be as convenient for everyone or as cool to hang out in, we don't see is going to be too much of an issue going forward. And well, it, it it's a it, it's a really green, lush area and um, and very central. Good good for the botanical gardens. And uh, will you have any alfrescos outside seating there? Yeah, we got this banging little yard slash court courtyard area. Um, it won't be for the restaurant, but you know when we want to do events or have parties and stuff, like we can set up set up in that yard area and just sort of ha have a really good time. Excellent. Well, with the best of luck with that, I'm sure the the move will be um, exciting for for you, the brigade, and and definitely for uh, for the Singapore community who who will get to experience uh, some of the changes and, and, and taking burnt ends in, in a new new, de new destination. In terms of professional milestones, you, you've obviously uh, won so many awards and, and you've got a restaurant in the Maldives, you've opened Meatsmith, Meatsmith Little India, Burnt Ends. What, 
what professional milestones have you not accomplished that, that are still on your list of goals? Look, I, th- I think the, I think the one that we we're always going to chase, and probably the most important one, is, you know, when we set out, we 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 just want to be, we we want to create a legacy restaurant, and that 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 means it's one of those restaurants that stands the test of time, continues uh, over generations, and is really a framework for people just being able to come around and gather and have a really good time together. And I think for me, that's essentially what we wanted to do when we started. We, we wanted to create a, a restaurant where people could gather and just have a really good time together. You've talked about your, your time in 2011 and 12 in, in London rather selfishly because I've left Singapore and moved to London but <laughs> do you have any plans to to return at any point because uh, a bird tends or a meat smith in, in a trendy area like a Shoreditch, Peckham or Brixton you, you'd see queues a mile long. <laughs> Look I, I think um, you know we started in London my wife's British um, so I'd never rule out a return to and I love London as a city um, I'd never rule out a return to London, but it's not on the cards at the moment. Not on the cards at the moment. I think London with Brexit and and COVID, it's going through a super tough time in hospitality. Absolutely. When you talk talk back to 2011-12, it's like halcyon days and uh, it, it's really a a shame that we're in 2021 and it, it feels a very different place but uh, in terms of some of some of the quick fire non-culinary questions I'd had how do you how do you start the day what what does your morning rituals typically look like so typical day is the kids will come into my room and give me a cuddle at about 6 15 6 30 um and then I'll get up have breakfast with them get them ready for school and then my wife will take one of them to school and I'll take the other one to school and then uh, basically get ready for work depending on which one we dropped off and then head to work <laughs> and that that's probably an hour and a half process hour and a half two hour process so that's that's the first hour and a half two hours of my day thanks Shepard you you talked about um, some very glamorous, <laughs> not too dissimilar to mine. But uh, <laughs> you, you, you talked about the the search for perfection that Tetsuya and Noma having the energy. Do you have a personal quote or mantra on on how you like to live life and how you like to operate your your kitchen? I, I don't know. I think it, it, it's always sort of changing, but it's kind of like. I think what it's settling on is do do something that you can be proud of. Um, because if you can step back and be proud of every plate that you put out, then you're never going to put out a shit plate. And if you if you work with others and you you can step back and be proud of the way that you've interacted with them all in the good times and the bad, then you're never going to have anything to worry about. And and so I guess 
I guess it's sort of falling into that sort of line. But in terms of work work wise, how we how we how we operate is very much work harder than you think you could. That's it. Because if you're working hard, you're going to improve. Absolutely. If you could have a giant billboard anywhere, what what would you where would you place it, and what what message would you put on there? Aside from the new bird ends opening in Dempsey. <laughs> um, I think with 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 everything that's going on in the world right now, it, it would it would have to be a message about you know treating other people the way you want to want to be treated and making sure that you're making yourself and other people happy. It'd be something along those lines. It probably wouldn't be like so formal. It'd probably be a little bit wacky, probably have like some pretty cool artwork through it. And it may not necessarily be a happy artwork. We like, I'm, I'm, we're getting some artwork done by this uh, Ukrainian tattoo artist uh, called Ian Levin at the moment. And I, I, I don't have any tattoos, but I've always thought that if I got a tattoo, it'd probably be one of his. Um, so it'd be probably pretty dark and detailed, but the message on it needs to be, you know, if you're not having fun and enjoying things and making other people happy, then you're fucking wasting your time on this earth. Absolutely. Well, Chef Pin, I have, have no more questions. Thank, thanks ever so much for talking us through your incredible career and uh, what, you, what you've achieved and all good things for the, the relocation and the new opening in, in Dempsey and uh, continue to read all the, the great articles and coverage that you have and hopefully, God willing, we'll be able to travel back to Singapore and sample your great, great dishes soon. Fingers crossed. And I hope you get your boy in uh, in school soon. That's very kind, Chef Ben. Thank you. It's been a privilege.